0: Welcome to the Canine Conservationists podcast, where we're positively obsessed with conservation detection dogs. Join us every single week to discuss ecology, odor dynamics, dog behavior, and everything in between. I'm your host, Kayla Fratt, and I'm one of the co-founders of Canine Conservationists, where we train dogs to detect data for researchers, agencies, and NGOs. Um, Today, we're going to start out with a little bit of a review highlight before I even tell you what we're going to talk about, which is that quote, Kayla and her guests are so generous in sharing their knowledge about ecology, dog behavior, and scent work. I really appreciate how their conversations span from theory to practical applications. My favorite part may be Kayla's thoughtful focus on behavioral health of working dogs. Thanks for making such a fun podcast. And thank you for reviewing. If you would like to make my day, go ahead and leave a review over on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. I read every single one and I share them whenever I can on the podcast. So, um, let's get into it. Today, I want to dive into the question of whether or not we, as in conservation dog folks, practitioners, are dog trainers. Um, and we're going to come at that from uh, a bit of a, a sideways angle by asking what is a dog trainer. Because I think before we decide whether or not we are trainers or not, we kind of need to define what a trainer is. And I am thrilled to have two absolutely amazing guests on for this episode, both of whom are really challenging the typical framework of what dog training even means and bringing lots of diverse perspectives into dog training. They've both been on the podcast before. So um, we're going to be welcoming Kim Brophy and Mike Shikashio onto the show. I am so excited to get to this conversation. We went in all sorts of different interesting directions about welfare and exploitation and what even is dog training, Um, all sorts of good stuff. But before we dive into it, we do have to get into our science highlight, which was prepared by our wonderful volunteer, Heidi Benson. This article is concisely titled, Relationship Between Aggressive and Avoidance Behavior in Dogs and Their Experience in the First Six Months of Life. This was published in 2002 in veterinary records by D.L. Appleby, J.W.S. Bradshaw, and R.A. Casey, so it's about 20 years old. The authors wanted to know if experiences early in a dog's life were associated with aggression or avoidance later on in the dog's life. So basically what they did is they looked at three groups of dogs. The first group, referred to as the clinical cases, showed signs of avoidance or fear or aggression. There were 820 of them. The second group was a control group of 82 dogs that had behavioral issues other than avoidance or fear or aggression, such as excitability, jumping up, chewing, et cetera. And then the third group consisted of young dogs from the general population. Um, there's 123 of those surveyed via a questionnaire, randomly distributed by 33 veterinarians. To be included in the study, the dogs had to have been obtained directly from a breeder at or before 28 weeks of age, and the maternal environment of the puppy needed to have been known and fallen into one of two categories, either domestic living in the house or non-domestic living in a kennel. The clinical cases were compared to the control group in three variables, the maternal environment, the exposure to urban or equivalent environments between three and six months of age, and the dog's age overall. The purpose of the general population group was to establish the validity of the control group by comparing the age at which they were obtained and the environment from which they came against these variables in a sample of puppies from the general population. Behaviors for all clinical cases were categorized into seven groups. So either avoidance only or aggression to unfamiliar people, veterinarians, familiar people, dogs of both sexes away from the home, dogs of one sex away from the home, and dogs in the owner's household. The authors found that puppies raised in a kennel environment or that did not experience urban environments between three and six months of age were significantly more likely to exhibit aggression towards unfamiliar people and avoidance behavior. The aggression at the vet was also more likely from puppies raised in kennel environments. Aggression towards familiar people or towards dogs was not associated with either a kennel or domestic environment. And these results support the suggestion that there is an association between a dog's early environment and the development of fear-related behavioral problems. One important limitation that was noted was that, quote, "...ideally, the controlled group should have consisted of adult dogs with no behavior problems, but the authors deemed it would be too difficult to locate a sufficient number of such dogs." the control group, N82, and the general population group, N123, were also much smaller than the clinical case group, which was N820. Um, and the others, the study also did not con- consider other factors that contribute to behavior such as genetics. And you can imagine that potentially dogs that are raised in, um, let's not just say a kennel environment, more, but more of like a puppy mill environment, there might not, there might be a lot of socialization stuff epigenetic stuff, hormonal stress, um, and genetics of the parents that are very, very different from dogs that are being really carefully selected in a well-considered breeding program. And that's not just, you know, kennel environment versus not. So definitely some stuff that this um, may be missing, but it is interesting that they found an effect. So let's kind of start getting into it here. Um, I often hear other conservation dog practitioners push back on the idea of being dog trainers. In discussions, it seems to me like this comes from a couple different places. Um, one, we don't want to be perceived as someone who can help you with your dog's barking issue. So kind of there's this perception from some trainers that I've spoken to or some conservation dog folks that I've spoken to that they're like, yeah, I don't teach dogs to sit or heal. or like, I don't work on obedience. So like, I'm not a trainer. And then the second thing that I think um, I'm kind of hearing when I hear these discussions is that there's this belief that dog training means forcing dogs to obey us and perform trained behaviors on cue with no freedom, teamwork, or creativity, and it's a very like hierarchical top-down process. Um, And there could be other reasons for the sentiment. In fact, if you listen all the way forward to the end of this episode, I come up with one other that um, I hadn't thought of at this point, but I'll leave that as a secret that you have to listen for. Um... But honestly, I don't believe it for a second. Um, We train and teach our dogs every single day to perform complex behaviors and stay safe in the field. I'm obviously biased. I've worked as a dog behavior consultant for years and still make much of my income that way. This, But this also gives me the perspective that, that being a conservation detection dog practitioner is far more than training some basic obedience. It's even a lot more than training a dog to sniff out an odor and sit when they've found it. Training is not the whole story. So while I disagree that we are not trainers, in other words, I think that we are trainers, I understand that we are so much more than that, and we have these really unique and special relationships with our dogs that are not best described as, you know, this really hierarchical command-based structure. Um, And personally, I feel much more comfortable as a professional, as a practitioner, as an expert, being familiar with things like the differential reinforcement of incompatible behaviors, or the concept of extinction, or... Um, the LEGS model of applied ethology, which we'll talk about a lot in this episode, which is learning environment genetics and self, um, because they give me roadmaps and frameworks to help my dogs out, whether that's helping the dogs in Kenya learn to ignore Caracol and Leopard's cat in favor of Cheetah's cat, that's a DRA, differential reinforcement procedure, or um, or, uh, or working on directionals with my dogs and making sure that I have a really good understanding of shaping and splitting and all these other training specific terminologies and frameworks, and then even working on other behavioral things. So luckily, I haven't had any significant behavior concerns with either of my dogs, but when I was at Working Dogs for Conservation, I spent a lot of time working on counter conditioning and desensitization and, you know, specific training protocols like look at that and latte and all sorts of stuff that you'll hear about if you're really deep in the dog behavior world to help those working dogs cope with the challenging environments that we ask them to work in, to help those dogs feel comfortable in kennel environments, to help them feel comfortable staying in hotels, to help them feel comfortable flying, Um, and to help them get over, you know, whether it's kennel stress or a bad home environment when they were little or whatever, because we do get a lot of our dogs in this field from less than an ideal environments. Again, whether that's a well-meaning home that just didn't know how to handle a dog like this or something else. So (laughs) if you're not familiar with them yet, Mike Shikasha and Kim Brophy are two of the people I admire most in the dog training world. Kim has practically single-handedly shifted the conversation in the U.S. to include much more applied ethology, while Mike's podcast is one of the most diverse and wide-ranging regarding lenses and approaches while focusing specifically on aggressive dogs. Um, So I'm really excited to have them here. And um, without further ado, let's get into the interview with, with Mike and Kim. All right. Well, welcome back to the podcast, Mike and Kim. Why don't we start out with kind of our our basic starter question of Kim, tell us a little bit about what you do professionally and the dogs you share your life with, especially with your new introduction. And then Mike, same question.
1: Sure. Yeah. Um, So I'm a uh, certified dog behavior consultant um, in practice. And so um, work as a uh, behavior consultant and dog trainer in my local area. And then I also um, have a background in applied ethology and then teach um, online courses and um, whatnot to, professionals around the world um, online and then at conferences and things like that and then I have three dogs four dogs now jeepers I've got to remember to add in the fourth one now that I share my life with Um, and uh, the newest addition is a Pyrenees mix named Monk a lovely puppy that has joined our family to uh, kind of round out our other mixes of herding dogs toys and another livestock guardian mix
2: Right. And uh, I'm Mike and I own AggressiveDog.com, and I'm uh, like him, a certified dog behavior consultant and uh, teach trainers and get to have the wonderful opportunity to travel around the world doing workshops and uh, talking about aggression in dogs and helping dogs with aggression. Uh, my dog is Castanya; She's a Chilean street dog that came up from Chile with my girlfriend uh, when she moved up and uh, she brought along a little uh, Chilean street cat, Renardo as well. So those are the two little critters I have in my home.
0: That's great. Well, yeah. And again, thank you both for coming on. So we're going to start out with what could be one of the most basic questions either of you has ever been asked, but probably could take us an entire uh, textbook to respond to. Um, what is a dog trainer? Um, and I guess, Mike, we'll start with you for uh, for fairness, and then we'll go back to Kim. <sighs>
2: Yeah, (laughs) so I think we're going to dive much deeper into that question as we go along here. But, uh, you know, I think classically, if we are talking to like the general public about it, we might define it that way. as the most universal definition of person that is teaching dogs to do certain behaviors, uh, to live more uh, or to adapt more to living in, in a home with people. So things that we teach them might be behaviors like sit down, stay, come walk nicely on a leash. Um, And that's, I think, what most people envision a dog trainer does when they just hear that word. And of course, as dog trainers ourselves or dog behavior consultants, we have a lot of other different terms depending on kind of what work we're doing with dogs. So uh, that's kind of just the short and sweet definition there, but maybe I'll let Kim take it from there.
1: Yeah, I, um, I, I think, um, I would agree with Mike that, you know, from the public's perspective, a dog trainer is someone who is hired, um, to kind of create obedience in their pet dogs from, from most people's perspective, um, to get the dog on board with the human expectations of what they're supposed to do and not supposed to do, um, follow basic commands, et cetera, kind of this like top down model, um, that are, that includes different mechanisms of accomplishing that control, whether that's positive reinforcement or more aversive based, um. Uh, approaches and techniques or some balance between those two things as there's, you know, a lot of professionals that kind of sit on the fence and kind of do a number of things um, in, in both regards to try to change behavior. But, um, you know, the idea that they're the humans are in the position of instructing the dogs um, as to, you know, what ends they would like them to uh, exhibit their behavior, uh, you know, in what context and to what degrees and when to inhibit and when to perform and and all of that. So I think it's kind of traditionally a top, down model. And at least from my perspective, but I won't jump into this now, you know, it's something that needs to evolve as a concept for the general public.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah. Thank you both for that. And I think both of you highlighted a couple of the things that I think already are getting to the core of what, where I think this episode comes from. So, you know, Kim, you really hit on this like top down hierarchical, Approach and Mike, you you hit on the fact that I think a lot of people think of a dog trainer and they think sit down, stay, come, and you know as as I think all three of us here on this call know, and probably most of our listeners, um, there's a lot of training that goes into handling a conservation detection dog or working with a conservation detection dog, but. I think where a lot of the hesitation kind of in this industry comes regarding the word training is related to both of those things. Like, on one hand, there's this perception that, well, we're teaching a dog to find, uh, Wolverine scat and ignore, um, Pine Martin scat. That's not teaching a dog to heal. So it's not training. And then there's also this perception that I think is even more pervasive and, um, more, um, More I think something I really, um, align with in a lot of ways is there's this feeling that our dogs in this field are our coworkers and there's so much more than something we're just going to teach obedience to and like run drills with. And so I think sometimes that, that word, a trainer can feel icky from that perspective. And because I think I identify as a trainer first, um, I, I don't feel that way, but I really can see where that comes from. Um, does that, does, do you guys have anything you want to add before I go on to our next, our next question? (laughs)
1: Oh, I I could, but Mike, did you want to jump in first?
2: No, I'll let you go. I have some thoughts swirling around, but I haven't solidified them yet, so go ahead.
1: Okay. Uh, Yeah, I was just thinking while you were talking, Kayla, that one of the things that has been really fascinating to me in my own journey as a, quote, dog trainer and behavior consultant um, is that, you know... we're kind of taught when we come into the industry and I think the public is taught that like you have to learn how to be a dog trainer or an animal trainer um and you have to learn the uh the the core principles involved in that as far as learning theory and behaviorism concepts um applied behavior analysis kind of um uh the the mechanisms if you will of 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 learning and then the um the terms and the processes for conditioning um and uh, whether that be operant or classical you know and and so people um look at it like it's this very isolated um in a vacuum kind of skill set uh you know, discipline, uh, practice, et cetera. And And for me, in in my kind of development as a professional, like I remember I, I had a hard time kind of reconciling what I was learning about learning theory and behaviorism, et cetera, with all of the other natural sciences that I was learning. like they didn't really talk to each other well. And I had this like epiphany, you know, maybe like five years into my career where I was like, oh, wait. Like, this isn't separate. Like, all of this stuff, learning theory, behaviorism, principles, etc it's really just how humans have figured out how learning works in nature. And so it doesn't have to be this kind of, like, hyper-contrived um, process. It's really a matter of appreciating how organisms and nature learn um, in order to adapt to changing conditions, et cetera, and to function successfully, independently as, as individuals, and then cooperatively with others and things like that. So it's more that we've kind of t- into how learning functions and, um, and part of that, of course, being teaching. And so I think it's, it's understandable that some people Um, like humans long before we ever figured out learning theory and behaviorism concepts, are just kind of working from the place of dialing into that natural communication, learning, working together, co-worker process you describe. And they're not thinking of it as training, even though what they're doing is teaching and the animal is learning. Um, And and all those processes are actually occurring anyway, even if they're not using those terms to describe them. But then other people might really like adopting those concepts and those terms to what they're doing. And I would argue that ideally everyone can benefit from a deeper understanding of behaviorism and applied behavior analysis um, because then we really understand what's happening under the hood. right? And it gives us a little bit better toolkit to work from when optimizing that learning process.
2: Yeah, if I can add to that too, I think, you know, my thoughts earlier were swirling around again, going back to that, if we want to call it a label of do- a dog trainer, so a title maybe, so to speak. And and when we think about it, it's, it's kind of like, you know, the term doctor, for instance, we label somebody a doctor. Um, we have a general idea, so the general public's going to know, okay, doctor, cool. So we know that kind of what that person's about or what they're doing. But you know, obviously the medical field has evolved over the last several hundred years or thousands of years when you think about it. But, you know, that term doctor has uh, sort of the foundational meaning. And then you have all of these offshoots or these other categories now of specialists and things. And so I think the dog training field has ev- is starting to evolve that way as well, where you have sort of, you start as a dog trainer in the sense of, okay, I want to work with animals, but the difference between the medical field and the dog training field is that there's no regulation and anybody can call themselves a dog trainer right and that could be very dangerous of course when we're looking at things like aggression when you know literal lives are at stake whether it's dog or human and so i think we're evolving but i do think labels are very important and titles are going to be very important as we continue to evolve because uh just like you know which doctor sets up a certain image in our minds. It's let's say maybe it's like whisperer or uh, some of these other job titles or classifications that can be, um, very damaging to the consumer The you know, the average pet owner looking for help, they're not going to know where to go or what to do if we are careful with our labels. So, um, I think we can dive more into the, the, the job titles and sort of what people do in this field a little bit more, but, uh, that's just some, some thoughts off the top of my head, kind of piggybacking off what Kim said there.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's that's perfect. And I, I like the, the idea of this almost as a title as well. Um, and I know when I've been thinking about what word might feel better to me um, as far as what I do with my dogs, because like rogue detection teams, they call themselves bounders, um, which has a specific meaning that I'm not i don't have totally memorized and then like conservation dogs collective calls their um their teams finder and keeper teams um which i i really really like um and the word that has felt maybe closest to me is something like a coach um (laughs) but i i do think there's also a part of me that is really hesitant to distance myself from this um you know, the the science of learning and what we know about animal, be- animal behavior and how we can tie into this. And like Kim, you and I have had some really interesting discussions about how genetics and ethology play so intensely into how I work with my dogs. Um, so maybe one of the the next opening questions would be something... Like what are, what are some of the lenses that dog trainers use when working with dogs? Um, we've already mentioned a couple that could be applied ethology, that could be um, behavior analysis. Um, there's there's so many others. So what are some of those lenses? And maybe. I wonder what what do those add as far as bringing us out past this really hierarchical top down sit sit means sit sort of interaction that I think some people think of when
1: they think dog trainer.
2: Mm, I think I'll jump on this one, and um, so again, going back to that title or sort of this this umbrella under dog trainer, um, I think it's. First and foremost, it's for anybody working with dogs should have a foundational knowledge of through some of the different lenses. So, applied behavior analysis, ethology, uh, maybe some of the medical lens it's understanding when a dog has issues going on medically that it might need uh, assistance or help. Um, so, there, I think everybody who's working with dogs in any facet, whether it's again conservation work or behavior problems, or you know should, doing trick training or anything like that should have that foundational knowledge because it's um, it's science. You know, We need to, to incorporate the science. And if we ignore that, you're really doing a disservice, in my opinion, to, to many of the dogs and the, the pet guardians we're trying to help in many of these cases. So, um, yeah, I think as we're evolving, we're seeing more lenses come into it. And I think as we go along in this conversation as well, we see trends in the lenses, right? So we see, like, over the last decade or so, applied behavior analysis really come into the mainstream in dog uh the dog behavior and training world which isn't necessarily a bad thing but sometimes we get hyper fixated on those particular sciences and then there nothing else exists right and so we see these patterns and trends that we have to be careful of because it's yes it's important but we we can't ignore the other things that are happening uh in all the science that has been explored over the last hundred years and, and longer that we can apply to working with dogs so um i think every again every every person working with dogs should have those foundational lenses and then they can go in kind of explore what they want to learn more about. Right. But I don't, I think the danger here is that we're seeing a lot of newer you know we won't call them trainers but folks working with dogs that actually aren't incorporating any lens of science or any science at all it's all sort of this just relationship kind of uh, i don't even know what to call it but it's there's no science behind it at all it's just kind of like abstract and they're they're putting their own theories and spins on it which is can be very damaging and we're, and we're seeing a lot more of that these days with the advent of social media so kim i'm sure you have a lot you can add to that <laughs>
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I was just thinking um, about the same thing. that You took the words out of my mouth about social media and the internet. I think, like, we're just in the Wild West of the information age, right? And so, like, clearly politics (laughs) have, have shown us that in recent years, that, like, what becomes kind of an authority on information, you know, much less science, like, is just so watered down. And so it's really tricky for... Anyone to kind of make heads or tails of that and determine like what's um, you know uh, what's worth learning or uh, kind of what are the, the the core things that someone needs to have under their belt in order to be practicing and working with behavior in whatever capacity. Um, and you know, of course, I'm biased, but uh, really, your question, Kayla, is is um, in my mind kind of answered by like what was the impetus for me of creating the entire legs model, right? Because the whole idea for me was like we're only looking at training and behavior through one lens, have, after having been in this field for a couple decades. Um, you know, as Mike was saying, there was kind of this um, obsession or just kind of like hyper fixation on the field of applied behavior analysis. Not that that's at all irrelevant. It's entirely central to the work. Um, but just, we kind of forgot about all these other scientific disciplines. So my task, as I saw it with, you know, putting the, the legs model together, um, was to uh, basically just play connect the dots with all of the work that other scientists have done from all these various disciplines, kind of in the spirit of applied ethology, but applied ethology is kind of inherently an interdisciplinary disciplinary lens anyway, um, of trying to take into consideration, you know, yes, ethology, but, you know, evolutionary biology and, you know, neurology and genetics and epigenetics and um, physiology and welfare science and um, many other smaller sub-disciplines, um, you know, psychology, etc., to try to understand, like, the big picture of what goes into any organism's behavior historically and other species, and then kind of extrapolate that as relevant to dogs because they are also biological animals because I think that's one of the things that we kind of do with dogs is like we talk about them as if all of these other sciences don't apply to them like they're somehow unique and in some weird black hole or vortex where like you know the, the natural sciences don't apply to them and so um yeah that's kind of my interest and passion is putting training and behavior in whatever capacity we're working into that greater context of natural laws and principles and processes um, and and then incorporating and giving good credit to um, all of the, the work that's been done in all those different fields.
0: Oh my gosh, I love Kim that you mentioned and I it's I, this is going to be a challenging interview because um like I feel like it's been 4 minutes since Mike said all these things that I wanted to respond to and now I I can't even um I can't keep track of all of them. Um but uh Kim, I love that you mentioned uh, that it sometimes seems like we perceive dogs as out of the, you know, out of the natural order. Um, I've been reading a lot of Franz de Waal over the last couple of years, and I'm reading oh, yeah. um, Mama's Last Hug right now, which is about um, animal emotions. And I think, I, I, I suspect that some one of the things that's happening here is we think of humans as so separate from other animals and are so reluctant to see that as like a true continuum, at least here in um, North America and Western Europe. Um, but, and I wonder how much like our dogs are kind of an extension of that, and we think about these things as applying to everything but humans, and kind of as extension our dogs, because our dogs occupy such a <laughs> such a strange place in our psyche, yeah <laughs>
1: yeah,
0: right <laughs> yeah, <100%. So>, hundred. <laughs> Listen, you and your dog are already canine conservationists by listening to the show, so go ahead and show it off. Join the club. Check out our brand new merch store, which is located at canineconservationists.org. It's stocked with stickers and magnets and bags and shirts. We're adding new designs all the time. If you're an artist wanting to collaborate, just We split profits and are eager to hear from you. Reach out at canineconservationist at gmail.com. We also offer all of our webinars on demand through our store so you can check out our puppy raising webinar, alerts and changes of behavior, introducing a target odor, as well as seeking sourcing and alerting. We're also planning to add new webinars to this all the time. So if you've got a request for a webinar or you're a practitioner hoping to contribute a webinar, again, we're going to split our profits with you and you can reach out to us at canineconservationist at gmail.com. Let's keep the learning going. Yeah. Is there anything, I guess, that we, um, Mike, that you wanted to jump off of, of what Kim said? or um, I versa? otherwise I'll just move on to the next question because I've lost my
2: Yeah, go ahead with the next question because I, I think, okay. yeah, we covered that one pretty good. <laughs>
0: Well, um, and one of the other things that I, Mike, I'm really glad you mentioned that we do go through these phases. um, And, you know, there was a pretty intense phase recently of this this hyper focus on applied behavior analysis. And I know that was was very much so the thing when I was coming up as a dog trainer. I started training kind of unofficially in 2012 and then got really into it starting in 2016. So I had like a four-year ramp up period. And, um, I remember very early in my apprenticeship as a trainer being told by mentors that, "Well, we can train a dog to do anything it's physically capable of," um, and I it, like I think that is one of those statements that is just so indicative of how pervasive applied behavior analysis was um, at the time, and it's it's been changing mm-hmm. a lot. Um, again, largely in, th- in thanks to the work that both of you are doing, and like just in the last six months, I feel like I've heard three or four different people talking about attachment theory with dogs, which is something I had not heard eight months ago even. So it's really interesting to see how things come and go from uh, the dog training world. And I, I suspect in a way that 99.8% of people who are not professional dog trainers just have no idea about these tides that keep shifting around us. Yeah. Um, So all of that to say, what are some of the things that you both are seeing and how modern dog training is changing, not just from like 2022 to 1970, um, because I think those 50 years have obviously been a huge shift in how dog training um, kind of works. But even comparing, you know, 2015 to 2022, 2016 to 2022, just the last five or so years, what have what have you both been seeing in the industry?
2: Hmm. I'm seeing a lot. I'm seeing the education just spreading at... Uh, exponential levels where I uh, in the previous fifteen years to that it was it was getting out there. It's certainly much more than even the previous thirty years. But in the last five years, again, social media can be damaging, but it can also be very uh, empowering and educational if no, somebody knows how to filter out, you know, the good content from the bad content. But there's, um, I think, it sparks a lot of curiosity, especially newer trainers, and they're learning about concepts and different sciences that might not have been talked about even five years ago and so we're kind of seeing explosion that and in a good way and it's evidence you know i i've i've been again fortunate to travel around the world now into 14 different countries and one of the things i always uh note is what the trainers in that particular region or country uh sort of know about behavior and i kind of always ask you know just to get an idea of how i can structure my talk but it's so interesting to me is that the level of knowledge has is just increased exponentially, like, uh, you know, what they know about in different countries where even five years ago, you would ask them about, you know, do you guys know about this particular protocol or this particular uh, training technique or something like that? And you'd kind of have to go through and explain it. But the last few workshops I did uh, in a few different countries have been so surprising to know how much they know. Like, they're like, oh, yeah, we know about that. Oh, yeah, we read about that. And it's thanks to, again, how information spreads these days. So um, I see, uh, as you mentioning, Kayla, like the attachment theory information. We're seeing a lot more talk about emotions, a lot more talk about neuroscience, which is really exciting. Um, And um, again, recognizing underlying health issues and their impact on behavior and obviously the ethology lens that kim's bringing to the table so um yeah it's it's an exciting time but i think what skill we need to teach all these newer trainers is how to filter (laughs) what's good information how to be to use some critical thought because again, social media can also be very influencing in how something is presented. It can be very like, wow, but then you have to kind of filter. Is that actually, is there some science behind that or is it more kind of just for social media? So yeah, it's exciting times for me because I'm seeing a lot of different uh, aspects that we wouldn't have seen, mm-hmm. you know, even five years ago.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I feel like it has changed a lot in just the last, you know, six years, as you mentioned, um, too. And, and I think so, a lot of that is really exciting. As Mike says, I feel like the industry is, is finally evolving in terms of becoming a little more interdisciplinary, um, a little, um, uh, you know, a little better in terms of overall education, kind of access to information. And um, at, at the same time, I, I feel like I'm, I'm also concerned about the um the lack of uh kind of regulation about the just the information that's out there in the world in general um in that there's you know online education has become a whole business in itself and so of course there's a lot of people that are offering courses in the industry um where you know it it may not have solid footing um in in some science uh scientific disciplines and principles and concepts and, you know, established theories, et cetera. And so that can be tough for a new trainer to filter through. Um, I also think that there's, uh, there's been an interesting split that I feel like is occurring uh, where there's a body of professionals that are uh, still much more interested in control and obedience, compliance and performance. And that group is growing And there's a lot more sports and, um, you know, uh, ways in which people are kind of pursuing their interests and endeavors for having their dogs reflect their interests in terms of um, their competencies uh, for whatever, you know, type of performance or application they're interested in, which is cool. But I also have a lot of concerns about that because I feel like dogs can still be exploited in that process um, in in people's hobbies. And then I also think uh, that as dog behavior problems have continued to become more severe in the pet population for a variety of reasons um, that we also also have uh, increased our attention to their emotional experience and their welfare, as Mike was talking about. And I think that's really exciting. I think the fact that we're stepping away from the control model um, and having different conversations about kind of what what ethically we have the right to ask or impose, um, what expectations are reasonable and fair, um, you know, taking ownership of the fact that changing behavior, training, um, modifying behavior is fundamentally invasive and, and kind of having a little bit more caution before we kind of jump in and start tweaking behavior just for funsies. Um, I think all of that is really good and important as well. Um, so I, I think it's a strange time in the industry, really. I feel like we are pivoting and shifting in ways that we can't yet anticipate the kinds of ends of.
2: Yeah, yeah. I want to add to that, too. Oh, I think ahead, um, you were – you yeah, Kim was mentioning – Um, So, again, this, you know, talking about sports or performance dogs, and I think that's an important aspect as a community or anybody in the discussion around dogs is to recognize that, you know, we have to pay attention to the culture surrounding that particular dog we're talking about, because, Mm -hmm. and I'm not just talking about regionally or where in the world the dog is located, but what that dog's purpose is for. So, you know, we see a lot of arguments, and I'll I'll give you an example. I remember talking about uh, a a maremma Karakachan mix, which is Livestock Guardian dog mixes, Mm -hmm. and... Um, you know, I was talking about this case. This was a few years back and I was mentioning the dog just stays outside all the time. And then all of a sudden you get some comments like, oh, how awful, how abusive and, and terrible for that dog. But it, we have to recognize the utility and sort of the culture around that dog is that that is perfectly normal for that particular dog in that working mm-hmm. aspect versus uh, pet, you know. Cavalier King Charles Spaniel in somebody's home, two totally different purposes, Mm -hmm. two totally different dogs. And, um, it's interesting to me. So some of these conversations around dog behavior and training are sort of, we, we see sometimes they're not recognizing that, okay, this dog has a different purpose or yes, this person is looking for sports and performance. That's why they got their dog. And maybe that's what their purpose for their dog is what they want their dog to be like, uh, versus a, person that's you know has a dog for utility or even a dog that's in a different country being used in the meat trade i mean there's different views about the dog that we have we're talking about at that time so i think it's an important aspect that i I, i'm glad we're seeing more of that recognized but i think it's it's, we're still a long way off of saying hey what are we talking about here and what is it for this particular dog what's the culture around that particular dog so Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, Great certainly. I mean, and that's something I've actually gotten less of it than I expected transitioning into the working dog world, but do occasionally get people, um, <laughs> you know, be, uh, questioning or pushing on the fact that I'm forcing my dogs to work. Um, and I think maybe because of the bubble that, of the very particular bubble that I'm in, generally, most people think that my dogs have. The best lives ever and um recognize what they're what they're getting out of their work but i do think kim it's really important and this is these are conversations we have a lot within um kind of my friend circle in the conservation dog world is this exploitation question because it's interesting how it is both true that my dogs love this work, and I selected them for this work, and I have set up their antecedents to help them love this work even more. I've made it into a fun and successful game for them, but I also have selected dogs with this genetic behavioral predisposition towards being so in love with their toys that they are very easy to exploit. Um, and that's something we think and worry about a lot in this field, or at least some of us do, um, because there's a lot that we can do with a dog that is over-the-top obsessed with toys that may not actually be in that, st- that dog's best interest. Um, so yeah, there's there's so much there, and there's so many interesting questions to pull on in that exploitation realm. But I also, I've just I've just started taking notes as each of you are talking, so I don't lose my thoughts too much. Um, one of the things that I, I also really think is important to pull out here as far as this education piece and knowing some of the science is that I do think it's really possible to get very far off of being kind of a quote-unquote naturally good dog person or, you know, a naturally good animal person. Um, and I think that's entirely possible. I also think there's a lot of people who think that they're in that camp who are are not as good as they think they are, <laughs> um, but for me particularly, knowing the science and knowing the the research and the background and knowing the history of animal behavior um, and our understanding of it is so important for me as a mentor because. It's one thing to have a natural feel for what a dog needs or, you know, you might not know the term differential reinforcement of incompatible behavior, but you might be able to feel your way through it. But it's incredibly difficult to teach that or explain it or, um, you know, whether you're working with a mentee or with a client and trying to help keep your dog safe in the field. So I think, yeah, those are those are the two big things that I um, I wanted to pull out a little bit more from what both of you were just saying.
1: Well, and I would love to jump off of um, what you were talking, Kayla, too, about the exploitation just for a moment, um, because, like, one of the things that um, I think is tricky is that especially in a field. Um, where for the last decade, we've been, you know, dominated again by this hyper fixation on a very concrete science of applied behavior analysis, which is all based on observable, measurable behavior and sticking to these kind of core facts and not extrapolating and asking questions and spending time in the weeds, pondering about things we don't have clear answers to, is that like, it ends up being a kind of bias away from some of the importance of, um, of even philosophy and, and ethics and terms of really being willing to wrestle with things that we know we don't have answers to. Um, you know, the idea that, um, you, you know, we can sit here and think about and reflect on, which I think, especially when we're talking about welfare is really important, you know, uh... for a long time we've been you know told or at least at the beginning of my career for you know at least a decade it was any dog being worked that was unethical right so if someone had hound dogs and they hunted them that was unethical if someone had a herding dog and they worked them you know on sheep, that was unethical it was all exploitive if someone had a draft dog that was pulling a cart that was you know cruel and and exploitive and so and and we've shifted to this idea then as a in as a culture as a society that it's a service to any dog to create a luxury. luxurious pet environment in which they have no function and no purpose. Um, They just get to live the, the fancy life and have all the good things and be comfortable and we play with them and everything's just really light that way. But you know, one of the things that like I really wrestle with because you know looking at things through the evolutionary lens it actually doesn't make sense to an animal to not need to exhibit behaviors for survival, right? Because in nature, everything has to be functional. Like you you have this whole economical approach to your entire life where you're being, you know, very cautious and um, uh, scrutinizing about how you're spending energy because you need to exhibit behaviors that are going to be functional and purposeful to, to the ends of the survival. And so kind of sitting around and doing nothing um, is, is cognitively dissonant, right? And so uh, we, we can breed and have bred dogs to do better with those conditions where they that passivity suits them fine. But we have a lot of dogs in the modern gene pool that have these uh, historical purposes and functions, like Mike's case he was speaking about with the Caracashan marema um, mix, um, where like it's actually part of providing welfare for them to uh, utilize those things that we developed um, or bred into them. So then we could reflect on, is that ethical that we bred the dogs, like you said, Kayla, for the high toy drive or whatever, so that then we can utilize it for conservation work. Um, and so we almost have to really wrestle with all ends of it, right? Like once we have the dogs in the population, I think it makes more sense to employ them for purposes so that they feel fulfilled because of the genetics they carry. But then should we be stepping back and saying, okay, well, do we really need to think about whether it's ethical to be breeding those dogs to have that kind of toy drive and again these don't have clear answers like these could be the things that could be topics of discussion for months long debates in an ethics course in a graduate level but they're still important to me that we ask them
0: yeah holy holy cow yeah i'm so glad we've opened this can of worms Uh, (laughs) um even though this wasn't this wasn't the direction we were planning on but um yeah, it's something I th- I think about a lot in the comparison between my two dogs, who I love picking on on this show, and I think at this point most of our listeners are somewhat familiar with my two dogs. So I've got Barley, who's a shelter dog, and he is absolutely one of the dogs that is most obf- obsessed with tennis balls and fetch that I have ever met in my life, and that includes working dogs from, you know, Green Beret and Border Patrol programs. Um, and then... There's Niffler, who I got as a puppy from a breeder, and um, I want both of them to be good working dogs, but when I was working on Niffler's um, play drive and you know teaching him to work, I was much more focused on helping Niffler have a variety of hobbies and a variety of um yeah hobbies and interests so that he had kind of that more fulfilled life and that work didn't have to be his only thing um and i think that's something that's really important to me with starting a dog but um when you do have these dogs in the shelter population or in the pet population that do have this level of obsession with toys i do i agree kim i think it's best to give them an outlet and there are really incredible stories we've highlighted before with rogue detection teams about getting these shelter dogs that have this you know this list of behavior issues of you know barking and chewing and biting the mailman and jumping up on people and digging through the couch cushions and everything else and then you get these dogs out into a job and so much of it kind of magically melts away. And that's Mm -hmm. obviously oversimplifying a little bit. Um, And in some cases it doesn't, in some cases meeting all those welfare needs aren't going to fix everything. But um, yeah, I I, I think that um, that question of fit is, is so important. And um, one of the things that we like also, we were just talking about um, in, we're running a course right now for conservation dog handlers, is that, to some degree, we can't really force our dogs to do this work. Um, I can't force a dog to sniff for me. Um, it's a little bit different from, like, an obedience exercise. Like, I can put my, put a dog on a prong collar and force them to heel in a circle with me. Um, but I can't force a dog to sniff anything out for me. And I, I, that is something that I do think makes me feel a little bit more comfortable with this field. Um and probably helps the public feel more comfortable with this field versus it's it's easier to imagine that a dog running the Iditarod is being forced to if you don't know those dogs well.
2: Hmm. Yeah, it's oh, there's so many thoughts swirling around. You guys are <laughs> you've got my mind going so many different directions. Um, and you know, it's that that word exploitation is interesting to me because I wonder who's who's mm-hmm. arguing for that because uh, you know it's if somebody has a dog in their home or is they're basically exploiting the dog because they might not have chosen to be in that home with that person. Right. We kind of control in most pet guardian homes. We're controlling most of their daily movements every single day for that dog's life, you know, mm-hmm. and for truly not to be exploited, then they have to be like the vast majority of the other dogs on the planet. There's 750 million street dogs or dogs that are free roaming mm-hmm. out in the world. Uh, but every all the other dogs, the, the smaller percentage of the dogs that are owned or coming in and out of homes, they're technically exploited when you when you really want to look at it. So it's <laughs> interesting that that whole dynamic. But you know, the other part of the conversation you guys are having is that the you know, and Kim's done such a marvelous job of uh, talking about this, is, is meeting the dog's needs and really exploring. Okay, if we're going to, as humans, select for certain traits and you know. Uh, we start breeding and selecting for certain things over generations, you know, it's our responsibility to, to remember those things and not forget that and not just stick these dogs in a pet home and under the name of exploitation, I guess, and, and mm-hmm. not give them the choices that they need that we've selected for. So yeah, so many, so many deep parts of this conversation. I love the way it's going. And um, um, yeah, just keep, keep it up. <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's keep this conversation rolling. Cause there's, there's so many deep thoughts here.
0: Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, and even this is uh, maybe a more minor example, but I think this circles back to this question of what what does the dog want? Um and so again to pick on my dogs, um Niffler is a dog who loves being outside more than just about anything. So if I am working or if I'm in a place where it is safe for him to be outside, he will spend 16 hours a day outside um, and just just sitting on the porch uh, digging holes, you know. Half the time he's being very nice and half the time he's getting up to, uh, you know, dog hobbies which are not always things that we love. Um,
1: uh,
0: Versus my dog Barley who um, would... He just wants to be where the people are. I I sing that song from The Little Mermaid to him a lot. Um, He doesn't care where I am or what I'm doing, but he wants to be no more than two meters away, but ideally at least one meter away <laughs> um, and it's just it's just so interesting and that that doesn't have as much to do with like being a dog trainer or anything, but I think it's just so interesting to me how individual they are, and that can get as granular as you know how my dogs prefer to work. Or how they prefer to play as part of their reinforcement when they have successfully made a find, but also just around the house. Um, it's so interesting to me to have a dog, one dog who never wants to be out of my sight and always wants to, uh, you know, be involved with whatever I'm doing, and then another dog who is just so much more independent and really just values that that space and that freedom. And they're the same breed and they've been raised in more or less the same house.
1: Mm-hmm. I yeah, I was just thinking, I love your term granular, um, Kayla, because one of the things that I think that we're all prone to doing is we like take a, you know, um, a clickbait tagline, headline, whatever, and we just kind of run with it. Like one of the ones that's been in the industry for a long time, but I don't think has necessarily been explored on a granular level is, you know, all dogs are individuals, right? And that was kind of the mantra of like anti-BSL and stuff like that. And very well-intentioned, like don't judge a book by their cover. And of course, it's entirely true. But when we don't look at it on that granular level, then we're missing the like, we have what goes into that individual, which again, I'm biased, but I go back to the legs model of their learning, their environment, their genetics, and then their internal world of their self. All those things are factors. And I think one of the things that I hope is starting to happen is that we are increasingly getting better at meeting dogs where they are with all of those legs considered. So it's not like, well, you're an individual despite your legs, despite the factors of your environmental conditions and how many hours a day you spend in a crate, despite the genetics and the fact you were bred to spend your entire day outside guarding livestock, not following obedience commands, you know, despite the fact that you might only be six months old and an intact male with some various medical conditions, and that's affecting your ability to listen today or the learning you've had in the past was a little bit traumatic or confusing or inconsistent, because we just come in with all of this judgment on every dog. And even if we say, well, of course they're an individual, we kind of say that like it's a nice thing to say and move on. And we still, as a culture, as a dog-loving community, as dog trainers, aren't necessarily great at really assessing all of those factors of what goes into that being and that's what I see the job of like our new family dog mediation program some of the people in there are dog trainers some of them are not but what we're trying to teach people to do is just to see all of those moving parts and help to communicate that to the relevant human parties so that they give the person a framework so maybe that family dog mediator is not a trainer and then that family goes and actually hires a trainer to help them implement whatever kind of behavior change needs to happen for the harmony of that household but rather than assume that like we just get in there and start changing behaviors and of course we accept them as an individual but we don't really get why we actually really take the time to look at that picture to make sure we're providing for that welfare um, and and, you know whatever our kind of bias or lean whether we are a dog trainer or someone who might be doing conservation work and not identify with that term um, i think that's something we can all kind of rally around is that concept of really meeting them where they are
2: yeah, that's uh, I, I I totally echo that because you know I think him sitting on. <laughs> the the need to have uh, sort of this much more broader view of everything that's going on with the dog not just focusing again on the trainer side of things sit down stay and not only just focusing maybe on another particular lens i think it requires a much broader you know for us to step back for a moment just sit to kind of look at this i think you know another thing you know kelly you're talking about your dogs too i mean the question is are they having fun i mean that's and, and and are they happy and And I think that's missed a lot because we're so focused on like that end goal of I must get this dog to stay or sit or I must uh, get them to do this particular task that they were bred for. And those are important, of course, but I think it misses the whole reason. You know, the work we do is to ensure the better life for the dogs, better welfare, better welfare for the people, better life for the for the people as well in the Mm. work we do. Right. So I think the broad question is step back and say is this dog actually happy with what we're trying to accomplish with our goals uh and 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 our in the work we're doing so yeah deep thoughts
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah. well yeah and uh, yeah mike i'm so glad you brought that up it's one of the things that when i started getting into this field and i think this probably applies to many if not most if not even close to all of us in this conservation dog world is one of the things i love most about this, is that it's something that I love doing. More importantly than that, it's something my dogs love doing. And even more importantly than that, it's something that has an important mission that I care about. before getting into the conservation dog world, I was in, you know, the shelter behavior world, and I loved that work. Um, and I so I had the I love it piece, and I had the important mission piece, but a lot of times the dogs weren't necessarily having the most fun, which, you know, is a huge contribu- contributor to burnout for shelter workers, even even as a positive reinforcement trainer and one of the best funded behavior programs probably in the world in a shelter. Mm-hmm. Um it's still just, it's a hard environment for both the dogs and the people. Um, and then I i originally got Barley thinking we were going to do agility. Um, and then when I did finally get my big break and got into the conservation dog world, it was just, it was like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. like agility is cool. Agility is fun and all. And like sport nose work is fun and all. I liked that. Barley likes it. He's honestly, he's just as happy doing agility as conservation dog stuff. I don't think he has any inkling of... Um, one job being more important than the other. Um, but for for me, it's so cool to see him loving something that also is making an impact. And I can probably think of two or three times ever that I've watched my dog in the field and thought, you know, he's not having fun right now. Um And it's that rare. And the two times I can think of are, um, Barley on his first, first black-footed ferret deployment. Um, I think that was a real kick in the teeth for both of us as far as preparation. And it was just such long, hard surveys with so few finds that, um, and I don't Mm -hmm. think either one of us were really fully prepared in our career for that, um. And, you know, so neither one of us were having fun at points. And then Niffler, the only time I've ever seen him not really having fun in the field is when there's um, cattle around and he's having to try and fight his genetic need to go Mm. herd cattle. And his training and reinforcement history of finding bats. And one of my favorite things about working both of them this summer was that because I had both dogs with me um, this summer, as, as opposed to last summer in 2021, I only had Niffler um, and Barley was with another another trainer. Um, this summer, if I saw a herd of cattle on the horizon, I could take Niffler out, do a little bit of engagement with him, maybe put a gimme out. So he got to learn that when there are cattle around, he can have an easy success. But then I put him away and I didn't ask him to work in that situation because Barley doesn't mind working around cattle. He's so much more focused on mm-hmm. on the job that it, it wasn't challenging for him. But, I mean, yeah, it's those are the only situation I, I can really think of where they have not been pretty actively enjoying themselves
1: in, in the field. Mm-hmm. Well, and Kayla, that makes me think about kind of going back to the original question, right, of, of our conversation of what is a dog trainer as it relates to people that work in conservation detection dog work. And I just, you know, to put that out there, I don't work in that in that arena. So I'm I'm speaking from outside of it. But I would imagine that what really matters isn't so much the label about whether or not someone sees themselves as a dog trainer because of all the cultural societal connotations, et cetera, of that, you know, whether that's something they're comfortable using, but realizing that they are in a position of being a steward and a teacher you know, and they're they're working to cultivate um, an experience, and then uh, the result um, with the benefits to the, you know the environment and our world that it has. Um, it's a win-win-win, right? Like that's that's I would imagine most of the people in conservation dog work are are not you know in it just to exploit dogs you know t- for performance and their own egos. I think people tend to in in that field um, largely just really be wanting to do it for all the right reasons, and you know bring. <laughs> it out of the dog and manifest that and enjoy being part of that partnership and that whole um, tapping into the very natures of dogs, um, their brains being dominated by olfaction, really utilizing that in a way that many dogs never get to. Um, and and But realizing they are learning and whether you like it or not, all of those Um, uh, scientific components of applied behavior analysis are happening under the hood. So it might serve people in that field to learn more about it, to optimize what they're doing with their dogs. But, you know, whether or not they choose to call themselves a dog trainer is probably neither here nor there. I mean, frankly, as a dog trainer for 20 some odd years, I'm increasingly not liking the label myself because of those connotation reasons in society. But, you know, um, I, I think it's it's a really amazing niche um, field. And uh, I, I imagine you have a lot of people with different backgrounds in it, and, and some are gonna like to wear that hat or label and, and others aren't gonna be so comfortable with it.
2: Yeah, so uh, so well said, Kim, because I think there's so much that we can learn from other disciplines and other uh, approaches to working with dogs. Um, it's, you know, I've learned so much from other, uh, you know, people working with dogs, again, that aren't in the same field or doing the same kind of work I'm doing. So you know, I'm working with strictly aggression cases, but you know, I've I've learned you know incredible defensive handling skills from the folks in the shelter world, or you know, the sort of what Caleb uh, was mentioning diff- earlier was like you know the science versus the art of training, right? So like, if I want to learn, you know, we have to recognize that a lot of it is like a like. The, the things we do, like in the agility world, there's a lot of subtle movements that a handler can make and sort of the art of it. Right. And there's no, not necessarily science. I mean, we could p- probably apply a science to it, but the movements, it's sort of like dancing. Right. And so again, the art just of so, just learning the subtle cues we can do with our own body can easily be uh, brought forth into the work I'm doing. So I do think there's so much that we can benefit and learn, not, not shut those doors to you know, the other lenses, um, and, you know, not caught up on the labels of what we're calling ourselves at this point. Um, you know, and it's, you know, things to, things to think about.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The there's, I, I, there's so many little things that, yeah, I want to pull out, but we'll, we'll start trying to wrap up here. And one of the things I was just thinking about is I wonder, so, so much of scent work in particular, or training a dog to do detection is about antecedent. So like when you're teaching a dog like a specific odor, that's very much so most of us basically it's like present the odor reward, present the odor reward. And you do that until you've got enough of a conditioned emotional response that the dog is going to start seeking it out. And that's where then I think people, people like focus on that, people who like training, they focus on that part. They focus on that like initial imprinting And then they also focus on teaching the alert, and they teach like the beautiful sit-stare alert or whatever it is, Um, and they miss everything in between. And I think also that Mm -hmm. in-between area is because we don't think of it as much as training, because we're using so much of the environment to teach the dog how to do stuff. And that's where it also starts getting really technical and really esoteric. Um, It's something I've been really dedicating a lot of study to over the last couple of years as far as, okay, so knowing what I know about my target odor and the size of the source that I have and its volatility, and knowing what I know about weather and terrain and vegetation, how can I set up where I'm putting the odor and the time of day and how long it's out there and where I'm starting the dog and then how I'm walking and how I'm moving through the environment in order to teach the dog the lesson I want the dog to come away from. And that to me is like just mm, the pinnacle of like beautiful dog training or mm-hmm. a pinnacle of beautiful mm-hmm. dog training. Um, but it doesn't look like what we think of as dog training and maybe that's another route of this that i actually missed until just now is how much of the detection specific work just really doesn't look like what we think of as training because it's so much more about chemistry and then <laughs> and movement than you're not getting like a lot of repetitions i'm not sitting down with a clicker and a bag of cookies and like getting um getting 16 reps in a minute.
1: Okay, I'd love to say something in response to that. I'll try not to go off on a massive tangent. But one (laughs) of the things that stands out to me so much, Kayla, about your beautiful description there is that you are you are dialing into flow. And I don't, you know, for the listeners, like, I mean, it's really fun to geek out a little bit on the psychology of flow and happiness psychology research that's been occurring in the last 10 years. After all this focus on like, you know, people being depressed and everything, there's been a lot of increased um, research done on the psychology of happiness and this concept of flow where all those things are like in sync, right? And from my perspective, that's like balanced legs where all the things are working together. And I think that's that stands in stark contrast in my mind to the kind of arbitrary nature of a lot of Quote dog training, whether that's with pets or in you know performance work or whatever, where we're trying to get a dog to do something or not do something that actually doesn't make that kind of sense to them. It's it's not just clicking. It's like it, it could even you know completely be petting the cat backwards for them and be like, wait a minute, what? This completely contradicts everything that I'm you know feeling and perceiving and and um you know feeling impulse to do. And so you know for me that that beautiful kind of cohesion where the science meets the art is when all those things coalesce and collaborate for this kind of optimal conversation where we're dialing into nature's learning processes As a a social instructor that frankly has intel for the dog that is meaningful to them about their environment and how their genetics can and the learning processes and all of the physiological internal processes can can combine to um, be more successful with the cohesion of all of those legs. Like it's, it's just that arbitrary thing has become kind of this dominant subconscious thing in our mind, like getting dogs to do weird stuff that doesn't make sense to them somehow impresses us. Where to me that beautiful thing that you described so well is just balanced legs and therefore good welfare
0: yeah well, thank you um yeah, mike, do you have anything you wanted to add or, and then both of you if you have anything you want to circle back to or expand on um mm-hmm. as we wrap up here the the floor is yours
2: yeah, I think um getting back to the artistry part of it, I can understand you know thinking deeper into it, you know how somebody may not want to be considered so analytical or you know, scientific in terms of their approach to something like working with a sentient being like a dog. Uh, It's sort of like if we were to, you know, it feels a little strange to apply science to like love, you know, if Mm -hmm. say you love somebody you know, kind of, well, can you operationalize that? Right. It sounds kind of strange to do that. So it's, I can understand coming, uh, certainly p- some people working with dogs in certain aspects are going to feel more of the artistry. Uh, but it doesn't necessarily mean it has to be a dichotomy from the science. I think we could, it's important to blend those two in many aspects. So, so just a quick thought mm-hmm. on that and, uh, and to just add on Kim's really excellent thoughts too. Yeah,
1: that's great. Yeah. Bye.
0: Yeah, well, thank you for that, Mike. And I think that's a, that's a good place to end on that, um, you know, the science, uh, it, it can be feel weird to try to operationalize or bring too much science into love, but that doesn't, it doesn't have to detract from it. So um, yeah, that mm-hmm. seems like a good place to wrap it up. Um, Kim and then Mike, do you want to tell people where they can find you online and learn more um, from you or about you if they're interested in uh, picking more up of what you're putting down?
1: Yeah, um f- so our our current kind of platform where we have our first couple courses offered one for professionals and people that are working in a greater capacity with dogs and then one for the public is um familydogmediation.com um for our family dog mediation education center and we will be adding a bunch more kind of special topic courses and seminars to that this year um from our student base around the world and um also folks can, you know, look me up on Facebook. I love just connecting with folks on on Facebook and Messenger. and learning about what they're doing and you know collaborating on all kinds of things so.
2: and you can find me over at aggressivedog.com. um i've got all of the information articles um information about the conference that will be updated soon but uh courses webinars is all on there as well as the bitey end of the dog podcast uh, which you can hear uh, right through the website or on your favorite uh, podcast platform
0: yeah and i i can definitely personally recommend both of those resources i'm uh working through kim's legs course online right now and mike's podcast has just been even though i don't gen- i'm not working with a ton of aggression cases anymore um it has just been absolutely fascinating to hear some of the people that you've managed to bring in on the different perspectives on the show so definitely check those out and For everyone at home, thank you so much for listening. I hope you learned a lot and you're feeling inspired to get outside and be a canine conservationist in whatever way suits your passions and skill set. You can call yourself a trainer or not. Um, And you can find those show notes and a transcript of this episode. You can donate to Canine Conservationists by t-shirts, and you can join our Patreon, book club, and coaching groups over at canineconservationists.org. Until next time.